0: Introduction Welcome to the Carlingford Heritage Trail. During the course of this audio guide, we will take a tour around Carlingford to discover many of the stories that hide around every corner. Located in the northeast of Ireland, nestled between Sleeve Foy and the majestic beauty of the Mourne Mountains, Carlingford is an atmospheric town that still retains its medieval character. This region features prominently in Ireland's great epic on Thornbul the cattle raid of Cooley. This ancient tale, set in the distant and legendary past, tells the story of Queen Maeve of Connacht and her husband Dalil, who plot to steal the magnificent brown bull of Cooley from Ulster, but find themselves against a mighty foe in the young warrior Coo For many periods throughout its history, Carlingford has been both a frontier and a crossroads. The cold waters of Carlingford Lock that provide access deep into southeast Ulster have made Carlingford a strategic place for centuries. The name Carlingford itself may hint at the region's importance to European history's most famous seafarers, the Vikings. As the name may derive from either Killingford, meaning the Old Woman's Fjord, or Carlin Fjord, a Hiberno-Norse name that translates to the sea inlet of Carlin. Though no direct evidence of Viking settlement has been found as yet by archaeologists, recent exciting discoveries during excavations at the castle may reveal more about the early origins of the town. In the early 13th century, the Normans established a powerful fortress of stone overlooking the waters of the Loch. A burgeoning settlement soon began to grow in the shadow of the castle. Houses were built on narrow burgage plots that ran out from the newly laid streets. Churches and religious houses like the friary were established and wealthy merchants constructed grand houses. To protect this prosperous settlement, the town was enclosed by a series of walls and fragments of these defences can still be seen in the town today. Carlingford developed during the Middle Ages into one of the most important trading posts on the eastern coast of Ireland. The town received five royal charters over this period, the first from King Edward II in 1326 and the last from King James I in 1619. This shows a remarkable span of prosperity and significance over a prolonged period. However, the 17th century brought famine, plague and war to Ireland, and Carlingford did not escape the turmoil. By the beginning of the 18th century, the town had greatly diminished, and by 1744 it was described as being in a state of ruin. This decline was the result of a number of calamities that combined to disastrous effect. The abundant herring shoals that provided wealth to the fishermen of Carlingford abandoned the lock and moved to the open seas by the beginning of the 18th century. The powerful corporation of Carlingford, formed by the Royal Charter of 1619, was dissolved shortly after the Act of Union in 1801 and the neighbouring towns of Dundalk and Newry developed into bustling urban centres, while Carlingford became a forgotten backwater. However, this neglect served to protect the historic fabric of the town. The lack of investment meant that the town did not suffer the wholesale demolition of old buildings to make way for modern architecture that led to such loss of heritage in other towns across Ireland. These historic buildings give Carlingford its unique character and identity. With streets full of stories and such beautiful scenery on its doorstep, the town has become one of the true highlights of Ireland's ancient east. Join us as we explore one of Ireland's most historic towns. The railway, the medieval port and Taft's Castle. The railway line in Carlingford opened in 1876 to provide a link between Dundalk, Greenore and Newry and to service Greenore Port, from where a ferry service operated to Hollyhead in the UK. The railway ran for 26 miles along the beautiful coastline of Dundalk Estuary and Carlingford Lock, and its passengers enjoyed magnificent views of the Cooley and Mourne Mountains as it made its way to Greenore. Originally owned by the London and North Western Railway, in 1923 the Great Northern Railway took over the operation of the line. The line remained in use for 75 years until its final journey in 1951. The station house now provides Carlingford and the Cooley Peninsula with community offices, a tourist information centre and an exhibition space where visitors can enjoy a panoramic view of the surrounding landscape. In addition to being a market town, Carlingford also had an important regional function as a port during the Middle Ages. In particular, the town became an important fishing port. Boats came from far and wide to fish the loch's bountiful herring stocks. The importance of the loch as a fishing location is demonstrated through a letter that England's King Henry IV sent to James, King of Scotland, regarding English fishermen who were attacked and captured by a Spanish ship while sailing in Carlingford Lock and imprisoned in Scotland. Close to the harbour front, Taft's castle was once the home of the Taft family, wealthy merchants who later became Earls of Carlingford in the middle of the 17th century. One of the family, Nicholas Taff, was killed fighting for King James at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. The fortified townhouse would have served as protection for both the family and the valuable trade goods stored in its vaults. The typical layout of this type of dwelling enabled public business to be conducted on the ground and lower floors, while family life took place on the upper floors. The architecture of the castle indicates two phases of construction, the main tower being of early 16th century date, with an addition in the late 16th century. It was noted as being the custom house on a map from the late 18th century. Taft's castle was an ideal location to serve in such a role as it stood in a commanding position overlooking the main quay where the tennis courts are today. The building was the epicentre of this busy and bustling port town, where sailors, traders and fishermen bought and sold goods from all around the world. Woods Quay and Boathouse The medieval port gradually declined as far larger shipping required far deeper water and the port was finally landfilled by the construction of the railway in 1876. Those who owned property adjoining the quays, however, were offered compensatory access to water on the seaward side of the new railway line. Wood's Quay was one such example, and was built by a Carlingford merchant, Mr Mattier, who charged keyage of four pence. The old quay was infilled in 1876 to allow for the development of the railway line sometime after the construction of the two long piers in the middle of the 19th century. These piers still enclose the harbour today. A boathouse, which you can see jutting out slightly into the harbour, had been built in 1848 for customs purposes, but was later taken over by the railway and used as a store for potatoes and imported coal. This quaint house and associated outbuildings have now been remodelled for residential use and are rented out as self-catering units. Positioned prominently near the shoreline, you will find a fine bust of Thomas Darcy McGee, who was born in Carlingford in 1825. From a relatively poor family, McGee was to become a prominent politician, poet and journalist on both sides of the Atlantic. He was educated about Ireland's troubled history by his mother and in a hedge school in Wexford. He spent the early years of his life involved in rebellious nationalist movements. Age 17, McGee sailed with his sister for the United States due to a troubled relationship with their new stepmother. McGee became editor of a Catholic newspaper in Boston within two years, where he specialised in writing articles about the movement for Irish self-determination, which was being led at the time by Daniel O'Connell. In 1845, McGee returned to Ireland where he became politically active, taking part in the 1848 rebellion, which resulted in a warrant for his arrest. McGee escaped disguised as a priest, and returned to the United States. Here he achieved prominence in Irish-American circles and founded two publications, New York Nation and The American Celt. He wrote a number of history books and grew disillusioned with democracy, republicanism and the US. McGee emigrated to Montreal in 1857, believing Canada to be more hospitable to the Catholic Irish than America. His new views on republicanism drew opposition from the Canadian Fenians, and he was assassinated by gunshot, most likely by the Fenians, in 1868. A man named Whelan was later executed for McGee's murder. King John's Castle the castle at Carlingford is thought to have been first constructed by Hugh de Lacy in the late 12th century. He was the namesake and younger son of Hugh de Lacy, the powerful Lord of Meath, who had been assassinated in 1186. By establishing a castle on this strategic site, de Lacy ensured that he protected the mouth of the harbour, and with the high ground of Sleeve Foy to the west, de Lacey effectively controlled access to South Ulster by both land and sea. Thomas Wright, describing the site of the castle in 1748, records that it "...seems by its situation designed to defend a narrow pass at the foot of the mountains, close by the sea, where but a few men can march abreast. Dangerous rocks and a deep sea below on one side, and very high mountains on the other." The de Lacy's had a fractious and difficult relationship with the English crown, who suspected the de Lacy's of harbouring ambitions to carve out their own personal kingdom in Ireland. When King John travelled to Ireland in 1210, he took possession of the de Lacy's newly constructed fortress and declared it to be a royal castle. Recent archaeological work carried out as part of the conservation works on the castle have revealed that the Normans were not the first to recognise this strategic position. A curving ditch that dates to the early medieval period has been discovered. Within the enclosure, an underground structure known as a souterrain was also identified. These stone-lined tunnel-like features were believed to have been used to store dairy products as they maintained a constant low temperature, making them a forerunner to our refrigerators today. They are also believed to have been used as a last refuge in case of attack. The archaeologists found pottery and a decorated metal dress pin within the Souterrain. These artefacts date the feature to around the 9th or 10th century, This enclosure is likely to have been the seat of the O'Carroll family. When the Anglo-Normans pushed into this area, it is possible that they deliberately chose to build their castle on this important Gaelic centre as a statement that a new power had arrived. The castle that we can see today is the result of many years of construction, alterations and renovations, as military science and architectural needs changed. The castle remained a royal possession throughout the Middle Ages and served as an outpost of royal authority in the hotly contested area of South Ulster. In 1334, it was described as requiring significant repairs, and further repairs are recorded in 1541. Though by 1549, it was described as being in a wretched state. In 1552, the castle was granted to Nicholas Bagnell, who undertook to repair and re-fortify the castle to protect the northern boundaries of the Pale. The developments of the solar rooms in the southeastern corner of the site, within the original Keep building, date to this period and represent the last phase of construction. Since that time, the castle fell into disrepair. In recent years, an extensive programme of conservation and repair work has been carried out by the Office of Public Works so that today, the castle still stands as a reminder of the might and power of the Norman Lords. The Courthouse, Presbyterian Church, Town Hall, Garda Station and the Medieval Town. Carlingford's well-preserved medieval street pattern is perhaps one of the town's most distinctive and attractive features, with its narrow thoroughfares adhering to a linear grid-like plan. Dwelling areas, known as Burgage Plots in the medieval era, are also still in evidence in the town today. On streets such as Newry Street and Dundalk Street, long narrow tracts of land extend back from the road frontage which would have afforded the tenant a public space from which to trade. A number of houses belonging to Carlingford's wealthy merchant families, such as Taft's Castle and the Mint, remain intact due to the fact that they were strongly built defensive structures that secured the family's wealth. More limited archaeological evidence exists for the houses lived in by the lower classes of the Anglo-Normans but they were typically small, rectangular, two-room structures, with one end serving as a cattle shed and the other as a living area. Houses of the Gaelic Irish peasantry are often referred to as crates and would have been situated in the countryside outside of the town walls. They have proven even more elusive to investigate and have been described as small, circular and windowless houses made of wattle, clay, earth and thatch that may have been quickly disassembled. A wonderful record of civic and ecclesiastical building design of more recent centuries can be seen in the buildings along Newry Street, with their references to classical revivalism and the more contemporary Art Deco style. The buildings reflect contemporary architectural developments within Europe. The fine courthouse on Newry Street, built in 1935, is a typical example of the classical theme being applied to early 20th-century public buildings in Ireland. The small building is also unusual for its references to the Art Deco style at its height of fashion at the time, which can be noted particularly in the courthouse's gateways and railings. The courthouse is set slightly back from the street line, with flanking walls and pedestrian gates creating a grand entrance. The building now serves as the town's library. Sitting right next door to the courthouse, the Presbyterian Church, built in 1869 by Robert Young, is a beautiful example of a Gothic Revival Church. The limestone and granite masonry of the façade, along with the beautiful stained-glass windows, form a focal architectural feature on Newry Street. Presbyterians had settled in Carlingford in 1700 and a church was established under the guidance of a Reverend John Wilson, who was licensed to preach in Irish. In 1940, the church united in a joint pastorate with Dundalk, but by 2006, the Carlingford Presbyterian Church had a membership of only six families. To the left of the church, the town hall's tall Italianate façade forms an eye-catching architectural feature on Newry Street. Built in 1928, the imposing rendered façade is characteristic of architectural tastes during the early 20th century. The interior of the building retains many of its original features. Beyond the town hall, the Garda station on Newry Street has enjoyed a rich history at the centre of Carlingford life. Originally designed by Welsh architect Jacob Owens as a Coast Guard station in 1847, it was later used as the town courthouse. The building has retained its original form despite its varied life. Evidence of this can be seen in the variety of window shapes and designs. Pulsel street. Tulsa Street is perhaps one of Carlingford's most iconic streets, with an eclectic mingling of modern and medieval buildings contributing to its unique charm. The first building that you encounter on the street as you enter from Market Square is PJ O'Hare's pub, also known as the Anchor Bar. Built in 1830, This building is an interesting example of the combined house and commercial premises that was once found throughout Ireland. The survival of the petrol pump outside the building provides an indication of the building's varied past and an unusual piece of street furniture. The regeneration of the street in recent years has encouraged the opening of cafes, restaurants, boutiques and bars. Archaeological evidence suggests that the shoreline ran just to the east of Tulsa Street in the medieval era, but it is unclear if the street looked directly over the lock or if it was protected by a defensive wall. One of the most striking buildings along Tulsa Street is the Mint, the smallest of the three fortified dwellings in Carlingford. This three-storey building dates from the mid to late 16th century and although its name relates to the 1467 Charter granting Carlingford permission to mint coins, there is no evidence that coins were ever struck within this mint. The impressive building includes a battlement wall walk, with musket loops visible in the crenellations. A doorway onto the street is protected by a machiculation, a vertical vault that allowed defenders to drop stones or burning objects onto attackers. These extensive defensive structures and the lack of a fireplace have led to theories that the building was indeed used as a mint, but it could just as easily have been the home of a very wealthy merchant family who wished to secure their wealth. Take a closer look at the decorated limestone windows. Each one is skillfully decorated with its own unique designs. At the end of the street, you will find the Tulsa building itself, the only remaining medieval gate into Carlingford and one of only five extant in Ireland today. The word Tulsal comes from the Middle English for toll and cell, meaning house or toll house. The Tulsa was contemporary with the 15th century town wall and functioned as a gate where taxes were levied on goods and passage into the town was monitored. The building also served a variety of other functions over the centuries. It is said to have been used as a courthouse in the 17th century, a jail in the 18th century and a meeting place for the corporation in the 19th century. Local tradition also claimed that a parliament met here and made laws for the pale. The building originally stood three stories high. Its present appearance is due to alterations made in the 19th century by Lord Anglesey. The Fair Green, Trinity Church and the Town Walls. The Church of the Holy Trinity sits on an elevated site overlooking Carlingford, indicating its importance in the town. Much of the church has been rebuilt numerous times over many centuries, so it is difficult to definitively date the building. But we do know that Carlingford had a church since at least 1287 and that this is the most likely location for it. The building you see today was rebuilt in the late 17th century and incorporates an earlier crenelated tower that may date back as far as the 15th or 16th century. Extensively renovated in 1804, the main elements of the church remain, including the delicate diamond-pane tracery windows to the nave and the large decorative east window. The simple pointed doorway on the south wall appears to be from the 17th century or earlier. The walled graveyard abuts the postle and it would have been adjacent to the medieval shoreline on the east side and possibly augmented the town's wall defences. The earliest inscribed gravestone is dated 1703, while a number of earlier stone markers are likely to be medieval in date. The church was deconsecrated in 1981 and now houses the town's heritage centre, which tells the fascinating story of this town's history through exhibitions and audiovisual displays. Carlingford's medieval town walls would have enclosed a rectangular area approximately eight hectares in size. They run from the castle in the north to the outer boundary of the Holy Trinity Church in the south. In medieval times, the shoreline would have come in much closer to the town, and it is possible that the coastline formed the fourth wall of the defensive structure. During this period in Ireland, town walls were not only used as a means of defence, they also served as a means of taxation and levies and formed a cultural boundary between Gaelic and Anglo-Norman Ireland. In 1326, King Edward II granted a charter to the bailiffs of Carlingford to levy a murage, or wall tax, for the building of a town wall. Unfortunately, few pieces of the medieval wall survive today. The first section can be found at Back Lane, at the northwest end of the town. The wall contains a series of splayed openings which have been interpreted as musket loops, indicating that this portion may date from the late 15th century when firearms were first introduced into Ireland. At the southern end of the town, the tolsel would have been part of the town wall and used for collecting murage and customs taxes. Another short section of the wall can be seen just southeast of the Tulsa. There is some evidence to suggest that a secondary or outer circuit of defences was provided by the Dominican Priory's fortified enclosing walls. The Dominican Priory. The 17th century historian, James Ware, ...recorded that the priory benefited from the patronage of the powerful Earls of Ulster. However, surviving documentation from the 14th century... ...tells us that the land was originally donated to the Dominican Order... ...by some of the town's wealthy merchants. The priory followed the usual convention of a Dominican establishment with a cloister, a church, dormitories, a refectory and kitchen and a small mill that would have operated on the stream that runs alongside the site. Today you can still see the nave and chancel church with a fine central tower. The building reflects the turbulent times during the late 14th and early 15th century when raids on such monastic sites were common. The buildings were fortified with crenellations, matriculation above the entrance, and two small towers added to the gable. The remains were conserved by the Office of Public Works in 1993, and it remains open to the public to explore. The buildings have had various uses over the centuries. One document from 1539 suggests that the church was being used for the accommodation of fishermen, who assembled there every year for the peak of the herring season. After the dissolution of the monasteries in 1540 by Henry VIII, the buildings were let to a local merchant and subsequently fell into disrepair. However, the Dominicans returned to the site in the late 17th century. The remains of the priory's mill and related structures are reminders of the self-sufficiency of the priory. Indeed, it is believed that the priory produced flour for the consumption of the townspeople, for which they would have charged mulcher, a portion of the grain from each bag. However, it is possible that the mill predates the priory as King John's financial records for 1211 to 12 lists payments for a mill and millpond at Carlingford. Evidence of a medieval mill, with a water wheel, survives approximately 50 metres to the east of the priory. It is built into a slope, as is common with water mills, to achieve the drop of water to power the wheel. Forged grooves for spokes and wooden buckets can still be identified in the half-buried cast-iron rim of the wheel, which dates to the 19th century. South of the friary, the overgrown and recently infilled mill pond, stream, and culvert can also still be seen. Documentary evidence also suggests that salt production was taking place close to this location in the seventeenth century. Salt pans, or ponds, were marked on a map made in 1693 by a Captain Grenville Collins, who was surveying the region. The area he marked corresponds roughly to marshy ground which lies to the southeast of the priory where Gan House currently stands. Recent archaeological investigations near Gan House have discovered a former lake of around 25 hectares, a stone-lined reservoir and a drain with slots for sluice gates that controlled the flow of water. Archaeologists from the University of Ulster now believe that Gann House was built on the site of the 17th century salt works and that the reservoir feature operated as a kind of storage area for seawater on its way for production. Market Square In 1358, King Edward III granted to his son Lionel, Earl of Ulster, a licence to hold a weekly market and an annual fair in Carlingford. The market was an important element in Ireland's Norman towns. The markets allowed the townspeople and those from outside its walls to sell their wares and purchase clothes, food and other supplies. Local tradesmen and craft workers included brewers, carpenters, cartwrights, coopers, dyers, potters, shoemakers, smiths, tanners and weavers. The annual fair was a much bigger event. It was often held outside the town walls and attracted overseas traders and merchants who sold dyes, fine cloth, metals, salt, spices, wine and other luxury items. Medieval market squares, as in the case here in Carlingford, were often just an area of a central street that was widened to accommodate the stalls, animal pens and the crowds of people who would attend. The exception in Carlingford is that a river was diverted to go down the middle of the Market Square to allow for washing and the evacuation of waste. This stream remained open and continued through to the Old Quay at the back of PJ O'Hare's pub. Heading west and up the hill from the Market Square, River Lane brings you to the site where the western gate of the walled town stood until the middle of the 19th century. Known as Spout Gate, it opened out onto the grazing lands of the lower slopes of Sleeve-Foy and derived its name from the mountain stream which enters the town here. Nothing survives of the gate itself above ground, but the stream still flows through a stone culvert under River Lane in line with upstanding wall remnants to the north and south, marking this as the likely site of the historic gate. A five meter long piece of wall, three meters in height, which sits to the north of Spoutgate, almost certainly dates from the late medieval period. Conclusion As the Reverend Lawrence Murray said in 1914, Carlingford itself is a gold mine to the antiquarians. Though not a handsome town, it is narrow, hilly, angular and gloomy. There is a medieval suggestiveness about it which carries one back many centuries and fills the mind with vague dreamings. Though we feel the Reverend Murray was a little harsh in some respects, it is certainly hard to disagree with his impression of the medieval wonders of the town. Thank you for joining us as we wandered through time here in the lovely town of Carlingford. This audio guide was produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Carlingford Heritage Trust. The production was funded by the Irish Wall Towns Network and the Heritage Council of Ireland. For more information on Carlingford, please visit carlingford.ie. To hear more stories from Ireland, please visit our website at abarterheritage.ie.